0: to another episode of The Five Things I Read This Week Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Zach Schmall. The Five Things I Read This Week Podcast is a division of Entering the Public Square, a blog founded on the sincere belief that every Christian should understand the importance of discussing Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. You can find us online at Entering the Public Square. That's my blog, and that is where the podcast is hosted, You can also find the podcast in the Google Play Store or on iTunes. So plenty of ways to check it out if you want to. And if you like it, I'd love a review on any and all websites you come across. That would be much appreciated. Help me improve my position and make the mighty algorithms happy. So again, my website is enteringthepublicsquare.com. That's where you can find the podcast and my blog. Interestingly, from my blog, just as a quick preview, I'm in the summer class of my PhD program working through Chesterton. And so I think my blog is going to have a very Chestertonian feel for most of the summer. If that's something you might be interested in, you know, come along, check it out. I'm going to try to keep up with my coursework and share it you know, what I'm learning with all of you, and I hope you have some comments as well, so we can have a little dialogue about um, this wonderful British writer. So this week on the podcast, and it kind of relates to Chesterton, we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of listening, because I don't know that we always listen to each other, and you know, i found in my life it never really hurts to listen I might hear things I disagree with, and ultimately I may reject the ideas that someone else put forward. But it never hurts me to at least listen to them. It's kind of a uh, a crazy idea in the world today, because a lot of times people will say that just listening to things they don't like is somehow offensive in and of itself. And I am offended by things, but then I reject the bad ideas. And I think, you know, we need a little bit more of that in our society. If we listen to someone and they're totally wrong, we say, you know what? That's a bad idea. I'm not accepting that, and here's why. We provide reasons, and then after we provide reasons, then anybody who's listening to us perhaps will agree with my reasons more than the first person who had the bad ideas. So I'm going to try, and I have a rather diverse group of articles today, but to, to talk a little, bit, a little bit about this idea of listening and, you know, seeing the idea and then, you know, maybe accepting, maybe rejecting it. Um, so the first one is interesting. It's from the New York Times. It was on May 16th, 2018, written by Sabrina Tavernise. U.S. fertility rate fell to a record low for a second straight year. So, you know, it's no secret that in America we're having a lot fewer children, right? And now, according to the National Center for Health Statistics, we're down 3% from 2016. That was our lowest rate ever. It was the largest... Oh, and these were numbers, by the way, from 2017, so that's a one-year drop of 3%. Um, It's kind of fascinating because uh, as we look at, you know, the stats, there's a professor here uh, from the University of New Hampshire, Kenneth M. Johnson, who says in this article, Every year I look at the data and expect it will be a year that birth rates start to tick up, and every year we hit another all-time low. It's one of the big demographic mysteries of recent times. He said it seemed to be inconsistent with the growing number of women of childbearing age. In 2017, women had nearly 500,000 fewer babies than in 2007. Despite the fact that there were an estimated 7% more women, In their prime childbearing years. Of 20 to 39. And. So here's the. Here's the thing. Now. We're listening right. We see the numbers. We listen to them. And we say. Okay. You know. Women are having fewer children. Now. Why. Right. So Johnson. Emphasizes, you know, it seems strange. There's a lot more women, and yet there's a lot fewer children. And as we advance, you know, in the in the article, you hear a lot of a lot of stories about uh, women in particular who want their careers. There's a lady, uh, her name is Shannon Hettinger. A 32-year-old from New York City who said that she wanted children. Then she moved to D.C. and was deciding on a career. And now that she has a career, she's not going to stop until she has children, right? So there's a kind of societal change, if you will, um, they, where she doesn't want to stop her career for having kids. Uh, there's another lady they interview, Ivy Gray Klein who works at the University of Pennsylvania School of Design. She wants to have children, but wants to wait until she's 30 or 35. And here's a quote. I'm just really trying to get myself to a place that is solid, she said by phone. Having a child right now would be so destabilizing. Children just seem like an enormous financial undertaking. Um, so, you know, I mentioned this article first, and I talked about listening. Because for one thing, I mean, and maybe, these are only two women, so we can't conclude about entire populations on kind of the story of two individuals. But, it, it seems to me that, you know, it doesn't really... This researcher from University of New Hampshire, right, he says it's really a mystery why we have so few children and so many women who ought to be of the age to have children. And, you know, we can look at numbers all day, and I I love numbers. I mean, my undergraduate degrees were accounting and statistics. These are fields I love. So we can look at numbers, but they're not going to tell us why. Because these are decisions that, you know, women and their partners are having um, about whether or not to have children. You know, husbands and wives might say, you know what, we're going to wait for a little while. We're on a five-year plan or a ten-year plan or a, um, want to be that our business started plan. Or, you know, maybe we just don't want children at all. There's certainly couples who feel that way, and so I think, you know, while these two stories of these two women who they interviewed in this New York Times article, you know, they may not be, who knows, if they're representative of the public, but the only way we're really going to know of why this is taking place is when we actually talk to people and we listen to them, right? And in the end, we may say, you know, it's not such a good thing to maybe not have children. Um, Or we might say, you know, like, this is good. We have so many people as it is. You know, maybe we don't need every family to have five children. Um, You know, who knows what conclusion we might draw from what we hear, right? It could be. But my point is, and I appreciated this article about that, um, I mean, we have looked at the numbers, and the numbers are going down. And so we hear from a demographer who likes to look at the statistics, and he says it's a great mystery, um, why we're not having children. And, you know, the way to do it is to actually taught to the people who aren't having children. Learn their stories, and maybe after we do that enough will understand. I also, just as a slight side tangent, if you want my opinion from what I've read, it seems that religious families tend to have more children than non-religious families. And as we secularize more and more, it doesn't surprise me that we see birth rates falling. Um, But that's kind of a slight um, aside. And not particularly my point highlighted in this article. But when we think about listening to people, you know, we can look at all the numbers in the world. We can try to break down everything and say, oh, the data tell me this. You know, the data can't replace the story, not in this case. So if you want to check out this article, it was in the New York Times on May 16th, 2018, written by Sabrina Tavernise. It's entitled, U.S. Fertility Rate Fell to a Record Low for a Second Straight Year. Now, moving on, I have an article for you. And it is from Intellectual Takeout. I love Intellectual Takeout as a general rule. It was written on May 14th by Stephen Walters. Do Millennials Really Love Socialism? And this this is actually a fascinating story, right? Because sometimes... We have to listen to things. And we have to kind of... Hear out... What it's... Really like. And hear... Not just like the nice sound bites we might hear. Maybe on... TV. Or maybe by our favorite politician. Or maybe... You know, who knows. But... So... As uh, Stephen Walters... He... Is a... Uh, he's a professor. And... He was teaching a class, right? His students in it was a freshman class, they averaged a C-plus on their first midterm, and they weren't very happy. And so he announced, okay, how about we scale your scores? And the students were kind of unhappy with what happened because his formula for scaling was to take from the high performers and redistribute those points to the lower performers to bring everyone to the average. And so some students weren't very happy, right? They did well, better than the C-plus average, but they were being pulled down. Some were grateful, and, and you know, it, it's interesting because as you read through this article the students would raise their hands and say, well, you know, I'm not happy about this, and, one of them, but that means my will go down. That's right, I agreed, but hey, that's a dose of social justice, isn't it? And, I mean, it kind of, I'm sure some people won't appreciate the characterization of that as social justice, and it of a mocking tone, but, my point is, um, all, all of this, right, we like to hear about things, and we like to say, oh, I'm this, or I'm that, and interestingly, just on Friday night, I posted on my Facebook a little challenge, and a few people to hit up, which I appreciate, if you are a, uh, If you're a liberal, tell me a conservative you respect. And if you are a conservative, tell me a liberal you respect. A few people have taken me up. I I appreciate that. It's, It's a good exercise, right, for all of us. And so for these college students, I think it did them good to hear, oh, this is kind of how redistribution works they might say, oh, I'm a socialist because I really like Bernie Sanders. I'm a Democratic Socialist. And then when they think about the principles that underlie it, maybe they haven't listened to someone actually bring forth a critique of Democratic Socialism. This can work on the other side of the aisle as well. Oh, I love the free market. And maybe you've never actually listened to someone intelligently critique the free market. I spent my last semester at Faulkner University doing an independent tutorial with one of my professors and he and I worked through Adam Smith, Karl Marx, and Karl Menger. Why did I look at all three? It was largely a curriculum that I designed, obviously with my professor's oversight and guidance, but it was what I wanted to read and why did I want to read it? You have to listen. To the voices that critique that what you like, and so this, you know, millennials seem to be embracing socialism. But then, when did they see a real-life application? And albeit the classroom is different than, um, it, it's different than economics, and the the author recognizes that. He's just saying it gives them a little bit of insight into oh, this is kind of had redistribution works, then maybe this is why some people find it unfair. But they only know that because they're listening to their professor. And the professor only knew, you know, how his students felt by talking to them. See, it's an exercise in communication. They would, you know, kind of advocate for their ideas and... I think that's actually healthy because people are listening they're talking it's an illustration and for the students they i mean they overwhelmingly rejected the scaling exercise they handed the realization that the grade you earned is the grade you earned and points aren't meant to be redistributed now you know does this apply directly to economics Obviously not, but that's my point, and this article is very, uh, I I liked it a lot, because it seems to me that we really need to, you know, we have to, without exception and without reservation, show people the you know, listen to what they believe, and then, you know, listen to people who offer critiques of our system. Now, this article doesn't interview any students to see, like, oh, well, did this change your view on socialism? I mean, it doesn't do that, and maybe no one does, but, you know, I think it does us all good to listen to those opposing perspectives from an intelligent critique. Don't just find some dumb person. I mean, look, I like apologetics a lot, and there are some intelligent atheists out there who offer significant challenges that Christians have to address. If if I go on YouTube and read comments under apologetics videos, and say, "Oh, I'm prepared. I can handle any atheist because." I can deal with that dumb commenter on YouTube who just says, Oh, Jesus never existed because the Bible is a myths." I mean, it, it's not the most intelligent critique, <laughs> to say the least. And it would be irresponsible for me to be like, Alright, I can handle that guy because it's a bad critique. So obviously all atheists aren't worth listening to. There are plenty of smart atheists, and their charges need to be answered. And as those charges come, we really need to listen. So this is the article, I'd recommend it. It's from Intellectual Takeout, written by Stephen Walters on May 14th, 2018. Do millennials really love socialism? Now, moving on to an article from the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. It was written on May 14th by Hugh Welshell. Influencing culture through all spheres of our lives. So, we have this concept in Christianity that we're to be the salt and the light of the world, influence culture around us, right? And Abraham Kuyper who you might have heard of, was kind of the ultimate renaissance man in the Netherlands. He did a little bit of everything. He was a theologian, a politician. He was highly involved in every, literally every activity, it seems, in the Netherlands. And his argument was largely that God, um, obviously, is sovereign over everything, all of creation, and there are different roles within society and different jobs. He has its sphere of sovereignty. And it's the idea that, say, government has certain roles. Business has certain roles. Science has certain roles. The church has certain roles. And so all of these institutions... Um, and... Um, They have jobs to do, and they need to do them, and they're all under God. So it's not to say that, you know, oh, well, the government isn't under God, or science isn't under God, certainly. They're all under God. Um, Now, the question, of course, is, what do we do with that? Um, And Walshville talks about something... That's called, the, uh, the seven mountains, and it it kind of talks about how there's different um, channels, right, of cultural influence, and as yeah as Christians we ought to uh, kind of look at these mountains, if you will, these different areas, and see how we can bring God to them, and I mention this in the context of this theme of listening, because if I, let's say I go into government, right, or let's say I go into business, and I don't listen to how that sphere works, how am I ever going to be able to bring my Christianity um, with me and help me influence that for a good thing? So, let's say I'm in government and I want to, oh, let's say a good uncontroversial cause. Let's say I'm going to make someone mad no matter what I choose. You know what? We're going back. Let's say I bring my religious beliefs that all lives are sacred and that makes me pro-life. Whoa. Don't bring your religion into my politics. Now, I mean, I think we all agree it was a great thing that William Wilberforce brought his religion with him in a way that inspired him to and slavery in the British Empire. I think we agree that it was a great thing that Martin Luther King brought his faith with him to help the civil rights movement advance, and to help encourage, for lack of a better word, government action. But I digress. But back to my point. Now, I need to listen as I enter these different spheres. These different mountains, if you will. I I need to listen because if I'm going to work in a certain area, I need to know how that area works. I need to understand what it's like and what, it, what the rules are. Think about it. If you walk into government and you think it's going to run a lot like your alliance club back in your hometown, you're you're wrong. It's just, it's not going to work. And when you get in there and you try to treat it as such, then you're probably going to fail because you haven't listened, you haven't learned the rules. And then how can you help influence the culture in a positive direction? Now, there may be bad rules, right? You enter a business and you find out that you know, the company doesn't run the right way. Now, if you find yourself in that situation, and I haven't so I can't really speak to it from first hand experience, but from what I've heard from other people I know who've you know, found themselves in difficult situations at work. The only way to help make change on the inside you have to learn what you're dealing with you have to listen and then when you see the problems whatever they may be you can start to address them and you can say you know i i kind of understand this is what's going on here and i have problems with that and you know here's why it's a problem and you can lay out a case but you can't do that and you can't really begin this work of influencing culture in any way until you listen. So this is a great article. I would recommend it. It was written by Hugh Welshell at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics on May 14th and it's entitled Influencing Culture Through All Spheres of Our Lives. Now, to the Federalist An article written by Joy Pullman on May 17th, and it's entitled, If the Intellectual Dark Web is Questionable, So Is the New York Times. I don't know if you've heard about this phenomenon of the intellectual dark web. I hadn't heard this term until the article Pullman cites, which I read, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, um, written by Barry Weiss about the intellectual dark web. It's It highlights people like Jordan Peterson, Dave Rubin, Sam Harris, Ben Shapiro. It, you know, people who, kind of, they're not in the mainstream. And politically, they may be all over the board, but the point is, they're kind of, um, they have ideas that aren't mainstream, if you will. If, um, they kind of... They may reject things like free speech, or not they might not reject free speech, they might reject the suppression of free speech, they might reject identity politics, they may say there are fundamental differences between men and women, um, and they, you know, they're kind of, uh, I mean, any of you who have listened to Jordan Peterson, or Ben Shapiro, any of these, Sam Harris, you'll know they're not afraid to stir up some controversy. Um, And if that's true, and they're not afraid to do such things, then, I mean, there's a little bit of a... They take some heat for it, (laughs) to say the least. I mean, I know um, Shapiro, who I enjoy listening to quite a bit, he... ...has been the recipient of a great deal of anti-Semitic hatred. Because he is obviously Jewish. And he is very public about his faith. Now... I wish he would become a Christian. He is such a smart guy. I I wish he would apply that um, intellect to actually studying the resurrection and seeing the evidence for why Jesus actually is the Messiah that he's still waiting for. But, I digress. Um, now, I mentioned this intellectual dark web because I've seen people on the left, although some of these guys on the dark web are left. I mean, Sam Harris was a big uh, Hillary Clinton supporter. so. The Intellectual Dark Web isn't really left or right, um, they had it across the board, but, I, I tend to hear a lot of people say, oh, I don't know, like, that guy, whoever it is, I don't like, well, he's just a waho, so I don't need to listen to him, I, I shouldn't listen to what he does, and I just know he's bad. Um, I, I know he's an evil guy, and so just disregard him and move on. Now, for someone, you know, like me, and this article by Pullman really points this out, there's an inconsistency when we kind of, you know, we reject these guys automatically. Because they're not mainstream, and here's a here's a quote from uh, maybe it's time to start actually making arguments for what should be considered racism or conspiracy theory, and why that should matter, instead of using words like that as all-purpose labels to merely shut up, to shut up the opposition. Yes, if we do that, some people are going to say some impolite or dangerous stuff, but they already do. Pretending it's not happening allows bad ideas to fester. Addressing them saps them of their power, and allowing people to float their imperfect ideas will help them change in response to criticism. It's messy, it's a little bit disorienting, it's embarrassing to admit you're wrong, and hard to consequently work to develop new habits of talking action. It's difficult to take responsibility for your own words and thoughts rather than outsourcing to talking and thinking to others who do it in exchange for pretension. But that's the price of social government We all have to be willing to pay in order to have a free society. Wow. Joy Pullman bringing out the hammer. Um, but she's right. I mean, I, I've seen so many people... And I mentioned on my Facebook my challenge of, you know, liberals, tell me a conservative you respect. Conservatives, tell me a liberal you respect. Why do I do such things? Well, because it's good for all of us to kind of do that introspective exercise. And, you know, it's kind of like that old, I don't know what it is, but I certainly know I don't like it. Well, tell me why you don't like it. See, and that's where I think we need to go here, and why listening is so important. I mean, I, I enjoy, when it's election season, I enjoy presidential debates. I really do. I hit into them. I live-streamed them on my blog a few, during the last election cycle. Why do I hit into it? Because it's Interesting to listen to what people say, and it helped me narrow down who I wanted to vote for. I, uh, I voted in the Republican primary. I voted for Marco Rubio. Now, in Vermont, you don't have to declare a party. You can vote in either primary. Um, I chose to vote in the Republican one, namely because it was much more interesting. Um, and in Vermont, with Bernie Sanders, you knew, uh, you knew he was going to win anyway, so it wasn't any fun to vote in that primary, Um, you know, my vote wouldn't have, no matter who I would have put, (laughs) um, it wouldn't have swayed who won my home state. Um, The Republican one actually had more consequences in terms of electoral um, totals at the end, but again, I digress. I listen, and no, did I agree with everything I heard? Absolutely not. I mean... It's still on my website, if you ever want to go back. I have the live streams on there, you can read my commentary. Sometimes I would just write, yeah, that's wrong. After someone said something. And, you know, that's okay. Um, and these guys from the Intellectual Dark Web, just telling them, like, ooh, they're the Intellectual Dark Web, they're bad, avoid them. I mean, maybe they have bad ideas. I mean, Sam Harris is an atheist. I don't agree with his atheism. Like I just mentioned, Ben Shapiro, I think his theology is off. I wish he were a Christian. I think that would be a better worldview for him. I think he's missing his Messiah. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't listen to them, and it doesn't mean that I can't listen to let's say Sam Harris, present on atheism, um, I might reject his idea, but it's a lot worse if I just put a label on him and say, oh, he's an atheist, and I shouldn't listen to him. I mean, that's not helpful as a Christian. And to be fair, Christianity is guilty of this a lot. Um, I've seen this multiple times, where, oh, you know, they're bad. Don't listen to them because it might um, it might destroy your faith. Instead, I think a better approach is, all right, let's listen to them and now let's talk about it. Let's, you know, work through this challenge. I think Christianity is the most comprehensive worldview that there is. And as a result, I think that we don't have to be afraid of anything. We don't have to be afraid of any question that may come. We might not know the answer off the top of our head, but I'm convinced that every answer is out there. And any challenge to Christianity, we can find the answer. There are plenty of smart Christians, and we have a God who's given us a pretty amazing guide to help us understand a little bit more about life and living and human flourishing. Um, So, you know, this article about freedom and about listening, and I, I think, I really, at the end of the day, you know, if you're one of those people who automatically is like, oh, I'm not listening to that person over there, you're wrong. Bottom line, you're wrong. Listen. Listen. Accept, reject, or move on, right? I I don't like Milo Yiannopoulos. I really don't. But how do I know I don't like him? I've heard him, not live, but I've seen some of what he's done. I've heard some of what he said. I don't like the guy. I don't think, you know, his views are right. The only way I know that is because I've heard them. I don't agree. Um, you all know I'm pro-life. I disagree with the pro-choice position. How do I know that? I've read a lot of pro-choice arguments. I've read them. I've weighed the pros and the cons, and I've come to the conclusion that a pro-life position is indeed better. So, you know, don't be afraid. And so this article... If the Intellectual Dark Web is questionable, so is the New York Times. It was written by Joy Pullman on The Federalist on May 17, 2018. Finally, for a major change of pace from The Intellectual Dark Web, um, but I thought you might like something a little bit lighter at the end. It's also from The Federalist, written by Nathaniel Blake on May seventeenth. why baseball needs to switch to robot umps as soon as they're effective. So hear me out. Don't turn off the podcast yet. Don't, like, shut me out. I, I'm going to make the connection here. To listen to. Um. Now. Okay, we all know, if you're a baseball fan, that umpires blow calls, right? They haul balls when they should have been strikes or vice versa. And now that there's a lot of, uh, technology, we see the instant replay, and we wonder, how did the Empire miss that? It's so obvious. Um, How did it slip right by him? He saw it go right into the catcher's mitt, and for some reason, he held the ball, even though it was right down the middle. And so people have said, and this is the point Blake makes in this article, um, why don't we get robots that hit accurately... Measure the strike zone of the hitter. And once they establish that, we'll know every time if it's abolished right. And basically, the bottom line that Blake mentions is baseball is about the players, and we don't want the umpires in the way. And sometimes the empire really affects games. So why not get a robot behind the plate? that always knows the straight zone, from the knees to the letters, and find that on every hitter, and it will always be accurate. It'll know the width of the plate. Why not do that? Now, for me, I, I have to say, I think that we need to This goes back almost to the first article about data, and about things like that. I really do think that, you know, baseball has a fundamental... Let me put it this way, intrinsically having another human behind the plate instead of a robot adds a dimension to baseball that is distinctly human and Blake does point out this limitation of his own argument but that is part of the game. You need to realize oh, if that ball is right on the edge, it very well might be held to strike. Like, part of... what makes spacebar great is... the unpredictability. And... you can't... the data doesn't tell you all there is, in my opinion. There's a lot that goes into... this type of argument. There's a lot... That, you know, the straight zone, it is, um, it's definitely something that needs to be brought out, because we really, we really have... This problem of a fundamental change to the aim are removing one whole dimension of what baseball is—the randomness—in the, as a hitter and a pitcher, what you need to consider has been reduced by an entire factor. Basically, the pitcher knows: Hey, if I put that ball in this zone. Every time, it's always going to be a straight. The hitter knows that ball will always be a ball. That changes the approach that everyone has to take in every matchup. And that's, uh, it, it just strikes me as odd. Because if we're listening to what baseball is, it's an entirely human sport. And it... you need to listen to what the tradition is and how the game has been done. It's not to say the game can't be improved, but if we deviate too far and we don't listen to it, the question, really, is how the players feel about such a thing. That's probably the most important. Do the players feel like removing this human element will change the game? Before we make decisions like this which the MLB isn't, this is just a proposal from Blake. Who at this is according to his bio has no connection to baseball as far as I can tell. With his PhD in political theory. He doesn't mention any association with any baseball team, um, but my point coming back to listening is for people like me, it really doesn't matter that much how I, uh, how I feel about baseball, um, but I think, uh, I think not need to listen to the players on such things. They have a story. They understand what it's like better than I will. And because of that, you know, I, I think it ties into our theme here. How we actually, we want to listen. And we want to listen. And even if, at the end of the day, baseball says, you know what? We're going forward with the robots. At least start by listening to the players. If you do that, I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, Personally, I don't love the robots. But if you're going to make a change, at least make sure those involved will be able to have a say in it. So this article was written by Nathaniel Blake on May 17th, 2018. Why Baseball Needs to Switch to Robot Umps as Soon as They're Effective. This was published in The Federalist. Well, thank you guys for coming along with me. And I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Until next time, everybody, have a great week.